0: This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.
1: It's now time for Women on the Waves, a show focusing on issues affecting women, here
2: on Christchurch's community access station, Plains FM.
1: Rachel Hazelden, and today on Women's Lives, Women's Stories, I'm speaking to Jane Camo. Jane completed, recently, her History Honours thesis on the representation of female medieval saints. Kia ora, Jane. Kia ora, Rachel. I'm so excited to read your thesis. It was fascinating, and I just realised that there's something about Middle Ages that just captured my imagination as a child and a teenager.
2: Yes, it was so far removed from... Um from our society today, it can kind of seem like a fairy story. So it's really interesting to study the real history of the yeah. of the time and find out kind of the the really intimate details of their lives.
1: Absolutely. So how did you come to do to this topic?
2: Well, I've always loved medieval history, and it can be kind of hard to find a topic because it seems like everything's already been found out about it. But uh, we've there's um, paintings on the walls of churches that have been excavated recently, um, or over the last century, and um, they're really under like overlooked, underrepresented because they they're faded and they're old and they're they're crumbling and they've been destroyed. Um, so I thought it would be really interesting to take a look at them and kind of uh, see see what the hidden stories might be
1: behind them. Absolutely. And you picked three women, so the two saints. Ah oh, yes, Saint Catherine and Saint Margaret. Yes, and then you wanted to compare it with. Eve. Yes, yeah. yes.
2: I thought they were kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of sanctity and then, like, wickedness. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and the thing that um, struck me about the stories is there's such violence um, and I found that interesting the way you said it changed um, you think the representation changed and that violence then got focused on more. Yes, it was to
2: do with this uh, Fourth Lateran Council. uh, And in it, they decided that all of the lay people, all the normal people, would need to go to confession. And to do that, they'd need to be educated. Um, And so because of that, they thought that the best way to educate or to partially educate the lay people would be to paint these stories of saints on church walls. And so the stories of these saints changed from being uh, specifically for the educated and the reclusive nuns and things like that to being for everyone. And some of these saints, their stories are very violent or they're, they're very um, outside of what the gender roles would be for women at the time. And so the people who are painting them are thinking, uh, we can't be just delivering this as it is to these to these uneducated people. They'll be getting all sorts of ideas. And so um, they had to change the stories somewhat in order to yeah. make them
1: seem almost like superheroes, I think yeah. the comparison was that I used. And the... Um The phrase that comes to mind is stroppy women. I mean, they were stroppy women. They weren't doing what was conventionally expected of them.
2: Yeah, I think the story of St Catherine is great. She decides that the emperor is a heathen, so she goes and confronts him, and uh, he challenges her to a debate with the 50 most educated scholars in the land, and she thoroughly thrashes them all and... um then comes for him, and she. She's aggressive, and she's insulting, and um, so you can see you can see why they'd want to uh, rep- censor her a bit for the, the yes. general public.
1: Yes, I remember um, I was brought up in the church uh, as a child, and I found um, the stories of the early Christians really scary. Like it was <laughs> like it just um, it kind of left me with that feeling of like the danger of speaking out.
2: Yes, I can only imagine what it would be like to be in a medieval church, and just the on the walls are just stories of torture and people getting their hair ripped out and burned alive, and um, I guess hearing sermons about the love of God. I mean, it all ties in, I guess, theologically. But it must have been uh, pretty worrying. Yes.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And um, what do you think the role is of saints? Do you think they still have a place in today's society? Um, yeah, I think
2: especially, well, for religious people, they would have a a purpose connected back to their religion. But I think for everybody, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating to, to uh, look at how these stories have been passed down through centuries and what has endured, um. I mean, we're still creating saints today, but mm-hmm. um, the, these really old ones—they might be entirely fictional. Saint Margaret and Saint Catherine almost certainly are, mm-hmm. and so it's just what these people have latched onto, the messages they choose to represent, and like, yeah, passed down through the generations, which has been, yeah, amazing. And Saint Margaret and Saint Catherine were the uh, two saints who inspired Joan of Arc to go into battle as well. Did so they? Yeah, they've really, yeah, they've, they've really um, contributed a lot to society, I guess. In their yeah. Own, despite not being real, potentially. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and. I, I mean, I've, I, that's why I do these interviews, because I love talking to people and hearing their stories. And I just think there is something that captures the imagination about the medieval stories um, in many ways. And I read that you had got interested also in history around, is it the Canterbury Roll? Yes. I'd never heard about that before. No,
2: it's kind of um, a special project being worked on at the university by some of the medieval team there, and they uncovered it. Um, I think it had been just in the archives for a long time. It had been brought to New Zealand... Ages ago, and kind of got lost, and um, it's just this really interesting genealogical role that's essentially a piece of political propaganda to justify a certain person being king. Yeah. Uh, so it's all scribbled over, really messily, and so yeah. I had a yeah, I had a um, I had a year doing research into the certain people that could be found on the role and
1: contributing to a database. So yeah, that's yeah, something. it's an amazing project, and it it looks like I was looking at the images trying to get a sense of how big. But have you seen the original? Yes, yeah. you have to put
2: like three tables together and roll it along. Um, yeah, yeah, to get the fault to lay it out completely, so yeah, it's pretty unwieldy.
1: <laughs> yes, and this idea that um, you can trace all the the kings, the early kings of England, from down from Noah.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, obviously, you can't because yes. a lot of stuff in the middle is very, very dubious. I think you only start getting into the real history about time of the, the pre-Viking kind of kings. Yeah. So they've done a lot of kind of uh, imagination, imaginary, you know, you know work of the imagination to try and hook everything
1: yes. together. Yes. Yes. But um, what does it? What king does it go down to? King or queen? Um. I Edward
2: the Fourth, so it was the Wars right. of the Roses, uh when they were having the succession dispute. Yeah. 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 So they were trying to decide between Henry the Sixth and Edward the Fourth.
1: Yeah. 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 And what was your introduction to history when you were growing up and when you were at school?
2: I'm pretty sure my earliest introduction was the horrible histories book series, which I always used to get out of the library. So yeah. uh, uh potentially why I got interested in the the gory and the, the dark and so yeah. um yeah, those were
1: they're books I hear about all the time, but I don't think I've actually ever looked at one. What what's what makes them so popular, do you think? Um, I think they appeal to kids' sense of,
2: like, the macabre. Like, I definitely remember reciting to my mum over the table the five Aztec ways to kill someone. <laughs> um, with guests around, so I don't think she was too impressed. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they've got like, very interesting cartoon pictures of great ways to die. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, macabre children.
1: Yeah, would be yeah. Absolutely captures imagination. Um, what are you thinking about studying next? Um, well, I've just started my master's degree. I'm
2: looking at the uh, mental asylum that has recently closed in Hokitika, the CVU asylum, um, and their nineteenth-century origins and the patients that were there, um, specifically cultures of masculinity, which is a bit of a turnaround from looking at the women. Yeah, I've been doing last year. Yeah,
1: yeah. Wonderful to look at um, a different aspect. Yeah, of, I, of gender. Yes, yeah. I
2: think um, for so long men were seen as the default and now we've gone and looked at women through this lens of gender and I think it would be quite interesting to take the lens of gender we've turned on women and turn it back on men yes. instead of just assuming them to be the default.
1: Yes. So, I'm trying to work through what you're saying oh, yeah. about the C view, was it only men no patience, no. But
2: it was built out of a gold mining, um, the gold rush. Right. Uh, so uh, there were a vast majority of men there, as opposed to other asylums, which had a roughly equal balance. Yeah. You've got a lot of single mining men, so I thought it might be quite a good space to examine, uh, yeah, how masculinity worked.
1: Absolutely, in uh, early European settlement, or or to what. What year are you going to look at?
2: Uh, it opened in 1872, so I'm going to start there and end maybe the first decade of the 20th century. Yeah. As it kind of started to die down a wee bit.
1: Yeah. yeah. And when, you say it quite recently closed?
2: Yes, I think it was in the 70s or the 90s or something. Right. Uh, yeah, so you can, the, the, the abandoned building is still there. It's still got some of the old beds and baths and.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, oh, it'll be very interesting looking up that history. Um and so you're going to do it at Canterbury University? Yes. In history? Yes. Yeah. Great. And um congratulations on you won a number of awards um for your thesis. Oh,
2: well, thank you. Yeah, it was oh, uh, yeah, I was yeah, really honored to get those awards because there were so many people in my class who were doing such great work and um yeah, any one of them could have got it. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um and you've your education's been affected by COVID. What was the impact um, been for you in the last year?
2: Yeah, it definitely, well, the, the honours year in history is quite famously a very difficult year, uh, and so it, it made it quite a bit more difficult and working from home without access to like all the books of the library and. Um, I went home to live with my parents and that kind of adjustment of routine, it was just a bit of a nightmare. So I'm really happy I ended up even finishing my thesis, let alone finishing it well.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how do you think it's going to impact um, on your cohort, cohort of students? Um. Um,
2: I think uh, it's it's made us feel like we've achieved something we've we've overcome a lot but I think it's definitely detract like some of the people who could have done really really well that year weren't able to achieve so well and um have yeah I think we might have we might have seen more more achievements and um more people going forward with their master's theses if it hadn't happened Mm. yeah so that was really unfortunate but um the the group we've that has, has come through has come through really like really strong and yeah we're so yeah. hopefully, still do some great research in the future. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and you had some time at the museum. What was your experience um, of oh. doing some work at the museum? Yes, I was going through some nineteenth-century
2: watercolor paintings there, um, and kind of just doing some standard data entry work there. But it was really brilliant to um, mm. work with the people at Canterbury Museum. That's such a great work environment. And um, yeah, we working. I was learning about their uh, their data, how they Catalog um, and um, store their their artifacts, and mm. um, yeah, I would yeah I'd love to work in museums. It's really opened my eyes to kind of the possibilities there. Yeah,
1: so, yeah, yeah. There's just just a, an endless array of possibilities, isn't there? Yeah. Okay, Jane. So I'm thinking about with your thesis, you have delved quite deeply into um, gender and representations of women. And what's changed for you since you've been studying and your thoughts about um, either feminism or gender? Mm
2: -hmm. Um, I I think one thing that changed for me quite a lot was I began to see everything as less black and white. Mm. I remember saying when I was doing my thesis presentation that I didn't think that my thesis um, took a feminist stance because I was talking largely about how the patriarchy, uh, the church elite, and all of, all of those kind of uh, wealthy people were putting these images on the walls um, and censoring them and um, changing the stories of these women uh, to, uh, to uh, accord with their needs. Mm. But um, I had it pointed out to me that just the act of representing women on the uh, changing the representations of women is feminist and um, women were acting as like receivers of these images and consumers of these images. Um, and now as I kind of go forward and look into uh, theories of masculinity, it, that also seems to me to be coming from kind of a feminist mindset to look at them through a gendered lens
1: and to... Um, hmm. So, yeah. So what I'm hearing you saying is... Um What I'm thinking is that it's never as black and white as one representation or the other. And also power is not black and white. So while it might have been the church putting the images up, it's still lay women interacting and changing, um, interacting with the images, does that yes. make sense? Yeah, you've yeah.
2: never got um, it's it's never just that these people are controlling the narrative because you've got as people respond to the narrative, their responses go up, back out into culture. And, yes. Um. Yeah. So yeah, I just I yeah, nothing's quite as black and white as I think I first assumed it would be when looking yes. yeah at history through a gendered lens. Yes, been fascinating.
1: And when I did gender studies at university, it's. Um, There was a lot of looking, kind of, ways of reading different things, uh, seeing layers and things, but also knowing that how I looked at it is going to be completely different to another woman looking at it, um, depending on ethnicity, depending on um, all ranges of background, Sexual orientation; um, these each influence how we view things, Um, and so whether it's a saint like Saint Margaret or Saint Catherine, or it's a pop star, (laughs) you know, they're um, they're they're complex and they're not black and white. I have just gone down a Justin Bieber rabbit hole.
2: Right? (laughs) His music
0: or the Um, history
1: of choice? Well, because, um, so it started out with, um, I watched the Billie Eilish um, documentary Mm -hmm. and didn't know a lot about her music and um, what a fantastic family that's kind of supported her. She was homeschooled and made the music with her brother and they were very aware of the risks of fame to a young person. Um, And she was a huge Justin Bieber fan. So I was like, I kind of know who he is, but I don't know anything about him. Mm -hmm. And then hearing his life story, like he, but he had a very different family background, very young, single mother, and grandparents raising him, and um, was massively famous by about 15, 16. And then, you know, went you know, took a lot of drugs, got a lot of tattoos, and and kind of dealt with mental health stuff. Mm -hmm. And then now, as he's trying to kind of get through the other side of that and go back to having a creative career, Mm -hmm. um, why did I go off on that tangent? (laughs) Just that that no public figure is black and white in our telling of their story.
2: Yeah, it would be like talking. Yeah, talking about Justin Bieber and I guess things like, uh, you know, the Twilight crazes. I that yeah, there's this crazy level of fame that people. How much they vilified Justin Bieber, which is especially like he did some terrible stuff, but some pretty bad stuff later on. Yeah. But especially as a kid, he was such yeah. a baby faced little kid, and everyone yeah. was so angry at him. And I, I didn't like him either, so I definitely participated in some of this. But um, just yeah. he was like, yeah, you're looking back on it, the the world just hated this kid and um, yeah you yeah, yeah they it's i guess an example of just making everything black and white like yeah um.
1: and i missed uh, i feel like i missed cuz i saw the documentary when he was like 16 and then i'm seeing it now he's about 26 so did they hate him because he seemed too perfect or did they hate him because he's more of your era like mm. was he hated because um he was going off the rails or... I have a theory
2: that people didn't like him because teenage girls liked him. I mean, same thing as mentioned Twilight. Like, I think that's a pretty... I think that's coming to be realised more now that people tend to not like things that teenage girls do like. Yeah. (laughs) Just on principle.
1: Yeah, and it's... um, It's unfair. And I I read um, the Twilight books um, as an older adult and adored them for taking me back to teenage years like it it so captured the world of that angst and that experience and I thought it's powerful and it's not fair to just dim- dismiss it straight out
2: yeah and I mean watching it back as a mid mid-twenties um adult I the, the first movie especially has, has, has got some good stuff in it yeah <laughs> good good lines good <laughs> good directing yes um Yeah. Definitely some flaws, but you know.
1: Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with
2: this. I have opinions about Twilight. (laughs)
1: Um, And you, one of the, um, when I asked you about a song that you'd like, you chose Neverland by Zendaya. Um, What inspired you to choose that song? Uh, Well, that song's
2: based on a song from the musical Finding Neverland, which I went to see in New York with my family when I lived in America for a year. Um, Yeah, and it's just a really poignant song about, um, you know, reliving, like, bringing childhood dreams into your adulthood. And, yeah, I quite quite like the uh, Zentai's cover of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And another young woman who's just so talented in so many areas.
2: I know, I find out she can do everything. Um yeah. the more I know about her.
1: Yeah, she is incredible. What was it about what did you enjoy about travelling when you went away? Um I think I, I I
2: went to live with my grandparents for a year and I, I think I mostly enjoyed just um going to the place where my dad grew up and getting to know the relatives I don't see a lot. So um Yeah. Yeah, I think I think travelling came secondary to that, but um yeah, America the I went to the East Coast of America. It's a beautiful place. Yeah.
1: That is gorgeous. So,
2: yeah. I'd love to go back.
1: <laughs> yeah. So your father is from the states? Yes. Yeah. 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 Gorgeous. Okay. Look, look forward to playing the song. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks.
0: Never I right felt alone I turn to the nice guy start right on my own where i could ride to just across the milky way if you like i could take you just like you